on to the next episode of my Save Bet show. And it gives me a great pleasure. And it's, of course, a privilege to welcome Michael Auer on the show. Welcome, Michael. Great to have you. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure for those few who may not know, no matter how unlikely that is. Michael is the founder of Nectin, and I believe these days Nectin is owned by OpenBet. That's right. Let me move on to my very first question that will focus on statistics and psychology. And it's very exciting because this is truly the first time that we've been tackling this issue on this podcast. And that is because you, Michael, happen to hold a master's degree in, in psychology and statistics from the University of Vienna. And you also got your PhD in psychology at Nottingham Trent. So would you perhaps mind illuminating us as to how these two disciplines interact and what are the practical implications of that interaction? Yeah, so you got it right. PhD from Nottingham Trent, and um, I did my master's in Vienna and Austria because I am Austrian, um, as most of the listeners probably will be able to identify. And, you know, like most psychology students have this romantic vision of becoming therapists when they enroll into those studies. <laughs> and, and they are, you know, quickly sort of, you know, mostly negatively surprised when they attend the first lectures. And it's all about actually statistics, mathematics, and numbers. And psychology is much more about, you know, measuring personality through different questionnaires and things like that. And then, you know, scoring people on different scales whether it's depression, you know, whether it's, um, you know, excitement, whether it's personality traits like extroverted, introverted, and so on and so forth. And I, you know, when I started, started uh, rolling in psychology, I was pretty open-minded. And in fact, I liked, you know, the mathematical aspects of it. And um, I never, you know, thought, you know, about, you know, really sort of, you know, going into psychotherapy or anything like that, that sort of, you know, was really sort of, you know, kind of, um, kind of, uh, more like a site, you know, um, you know, like an idea for myself. And that's why, you know, I enjoyed it. And then I thought, I mean, I can, you know, sort of uh, dig deeper there. And then I also studied statistics. And if you read, you know, papers, for example, I mean, gambling research papers um, in the psych in psychological journals, then you will quickly realize that somebody will only be able to write a paper if they are to some degree statistically skilled or if they have to some degree access to statistically skilled people who will help them perform the analysis, write the results, draw the conclusions, and it's all about significance, right? In, in, you know, in academic research, we only talk about things which are statistically significant, significant, and we won't sort of dig so deep there as to discuss the philosophy of statistical significance testing, which goes back to Sir Karl Popper, who was kind of, you know, famous statistician. And it's actually more like a, more of a philosophical, um, you know, philosophical um, assumptions 
than really mathematicals, which are behind statistical testing. But I believe I can relate to that. I was a lawyer once and look where I've landed or better, <laughs> yeah. for better or, or worse. <laughs> this also could be used, and I will do that as a segue into my next question. Question: It's slightly a lighter touch one. Did you always want to be a statistician when you were a kid? And I have to say that I absolutely love sports statistics, so I can actually imagine myself being a statistician. But was that your childhood dream or did, did that come about only later? I mean, st statistician, like, I mean, most people um, connect, like counting, you know, piece, counting objects, whatever, or maybe census, you know, with statistics, like how many, you know, um, people live there, live here, what about the demographics, etc. For me, you know, statistics is much more about detecting patterns, you know, patterns in large numbers, because if you have large numbers, then you will see sort of, you know, the true patterns with small samples, you know, single people you might talk to about certain aspects, you might receive individual opinions but you know if you sort of do this on a larger scale then something kicks in you know which in statistics we call the law of large numbers and you will have patterns whether this is you know political polls or you know any other opinion research or at the end of the day gambling research so for me statistics is a lot about identifying patterns and um, of course you know in my sort of profession it's about, you know, behavioral patterns. It's about human behavior. And in particular, it's about gambling. Thanks for that. Let's talk about our friend, Professor Mark Griffiths. Needless to say, a big gun and a legend in gambling harm-related psychology, just like yourself, of course. You guys have worked quite closely together for years and years. So what is it like to have worked with him? And in what way is his, we will come to talking about your research, as well, his research different from what the industry may get to see from other organizations in this space. I mean, he's a very special person in a very, you know, positive, uh, positive way, of course. And, you know, he realized very early on, and I think it goes back to 1993, when he said, you know, that um, gambling operators could actually utilize data to gain deeper understanding into behavioral patterns. And when we met first time in 2008, there were very few studies based on actual player tracking data by Howard Shaver and Julia Braverman, etc., right? The Harvard affiliate group. And then we started to delve into that subject. And um, I can only say, you know, the work is great. So, I mean, like if I write up a paper which takes me, I don't know, maybe one or two weeks, and I send it to him, I can be sure that the next day I have a response. And he pretty much read, read like my entire document. <laughs> so he reads everything, he rewrites everything. And, you know, I even uh, sometimes, you know, do, uh, you know, uh, attempt to find out whether he just does it for the joy of rewriting stuff, you know, <laughs> or whether my English is really so bad. But, you know, I think it's a mix of both. So we have a very, you know, high frequency of interaction when it comes to writing something up. And I can only say he contributes really. I mean, he publishes a lot of stuff, not, you know, only 
gambling research, but behavioral addiction research in totality, like gaming, um, you know, sex addiction, I don't know, everything, you know, which is sort of behavioral addiction related. And what I do sort of, you know, is a small percentage of the research out the T, you know, that he puts out there. And our research is mostly a 99% based on actual data from actual get, you know, players. Let's look, if we may, behind the scenes of the article of the articles that you have authored, 40 plus, and I'm sure counting, peer-reviewed articles on a variety of topics such as limit setting, personalized feedback, or self-exclusion. So how long, if I may start there, how long would you typically spend on coming up with the idea and then studying in it, researching it? I'm sure our audience would Love to hear that because they may not be familiar with the creative process. It's not just, I suppose, about writing it all up. It's about, you know, sort of an idea needs to come to my mind, right? And for example, let's, uh, let's uh, take the, the latest in the, the other, the last year I published a paper about chasing losses. So I thought, you know, for quite a long time, I thought, okay, chasing losses is something everybody seems to connect something with it, right? So anybody I talk to in the gambling industry will sort of connect something with chasing losses. But let's say if we discuss now what, 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 what is it really, right? You know, how could you sort of measure it? Then probably, you know, five people will come up with six different opinions. And then I thought, okay, you know, I, I, I'm going to sit down, you know, I'm going to, think about, okay, what could you do, right? So, and then we operation, I operationalized it and I thought, okay, if somebody gambles on day one and I correlate, you know, their loss with their amount wagered the next day. And that's, you know, one way to look at chasing losses. And that's actually how the DSM-5 operationalizes it. You know, do you come back the other day and, you know, gamble more if you lost the day before? And then, you know, I'm thinking about, those things, I go into the data and, you know, we have lots of data from all sorts of operators around the world. I play around a bit with the data and then, you know, for me, basically that's the point when my sort of thinking about it is finished and then I go into execution. Execution means I analyze, right? I produce the results, I produce all the tables, all the charts, all the figures, and then comes the most painful part. Actually, something I'm working on right now is I have a blank, you know, word document. <laughs> I first think of a title because that helps me to sort of guide myself, right? I need a title, right? Something, you know, really, that's almost like 99% the final title I'm going to have. And then <laughs> I'm going to write the introduction. And every introduction is basically the same. It's about, okay, problem gambling, online gambling, you know, like online gambling and yeah. problem gambling. And there's just so many studies out there, right? So this year I almost published, I think I'm about like nine papers or 10 published papers. And like the introduction is pretty much the same everywhere, but you cannot plagiarize yourself. I mean, in other research areas, you can refer to a paper and just write an update, right? In psycho psychology, psychological research, at least those journals we are publishing in, you have to write an introduction every time. But if you have two very similar papers that you're publishing, let's say I do a paper about limit setting and another one about limit setting, maybe one with UK players, maybe one with Ontario players. Still, 
I have to come up with an introduction, which is completely different because otherwise, you know, I'm accused of plagiarism. So I have to come up with something that's completely different. So I do not sort of copy my own introductions, but basically I sort of wipe my slate clean and I completely start from scratch. And that sort of takes me, I don't know, a day basically to write this introduction. And from that, you know, it's basically standard procedure. It's about methods, like which, you know, methods to use. You describe your sample, you write up the results. And the last part is the discussion. But all in all, I would say, I mean, a month or something, or one a month, a month and a half, until, you know, we have finished all the iterations between me and Mark Griffiths and, you know, my co-authors, and then, you know, we submit it to a journal. Thank you very much for the very useful insight into the creative process. As an occasional columnist, I do feel the agony or your agony of having a blank page in front of you trying to write something up or get something started. And, well, I also, I also suppose that uh, we could be talking about the... Or we could be having a philosophical debate about whether self-plagiarism counts as plagiarism. Could you plagiarize yourself? But let's brush that aside. This research is truly appreciated by the industry, but it's also here, or it's meant to be, it's designed to be applied. Because in at least in my book, it'd be, it would be a shame if it just got published and then collected some dust on the proverbial shelf. And I'm by no means suggesting that that would be your case. but could you tell me a little more about how your research, past and present, is being applied across the industry and how it's helping the online gambling operators to retain their customers? Yeah, I hope it is. I mean, <laughs> I can't really tell for sure. But, you know, um, what sort of course, you know, I think every researcher who works in a sort of practical subject area, um, you know, is happy or you know it brings it sort of you know it satisfies them to some degree if the research is really you know applied in real world you know and in our case so for example the what i'm the example about chasing losses that i mentioned before is an operator or you know a gambling company i mean such you know as you know yourself could basically um use our research and translate that into pre-able tracking metrics, right? They could basically, you know, pick up the paper and, you know, go step by step and, you know, use our findings and, you know, translate it, for example, to identify chasing losses, ultimately, you know, um, and, you know, uh, potentially problem gambling. I mean, at next and of course, you know, we also have a commercial, you know, uh, sort of, of course, there is, you know, a commercial aspect to it. But sometimes, like late last year at iGaming Next, you know, a lady from a gambling company walks up to me and said, yeah, doctor, oh, it's nice to meet you. And so, you know, uh, I mean, I read all the research, you know, and we built your, our gambling algorithm exactly, you know, uh, following your research, you know. I mean, that's something which, of course, you know, is uh, very flattering from research point of view. Commercially, right? <laughs> you know, you would rather want them sort of, you know, to contract your services. But that's, you know, simply... You know, I think, I mean, for me, it was always very important to be transparent, right? I mean, everything that we do, you know, we publish it academically. Of course, somebody could come along, right? And they, you know, simply do it themselves. But, you know, this is just, you know, 
one of the caveats, you know, that you sort of, of course, uh, um, you know, agree to if you are, you know, putting um, all your research out there. And I should, of course, have referred to you as Dr. Michael, our credit, back, back, back credit is, is you. And I would strongly suggest that indeed Necton is a practical embodiment of your applied research efforts. So would you mind giving us a little insight into Necton's origin and its evolution and where is it headed now being owned by OpenBet? Sure. So it all started, I mean, I'd say it goes back to about 2003 when me and Andreas Schneeberger, who is the co-founder, met at a actually data mining company in Vienna. And back then, you know, what we call AI, machine learning, back then they call it data mining. And then sort of, you know, we started Necton, I mean, a precursor of Necton. Necton, the legal entity uh, was established in 2008, but we started to work together about 2004 and started um, to work with um, the Austrian Lotteries, Casinos Austria in 2005. And they have an online casino, which actually dates back to 1996. And we had them in the beginning actually um, helped their CRM department in the beginning. So there it was really all about, you know, understanding online gambling behavior, um, identifying cross-selling, upselling potentials. I mean, everything, you know, that you would still do to this day, um, you know, to sort of, you know, um, optimize um, your and target CRM purposes. And, but that wasn't, you know, um, limited to gambling. We also uh, worked for with uh, insurance companies, um, banks. I mean, every type of B2C company, which has a very large customer base, which is identified telecommunication companies everywhere, you know, you could sort of gain a benefit from analyzing, you know, large patterns and identifying potentials. And in 2000. Eight, I met Mark Griffiths, and then actually this, you know, the responsible gaming journey um, started. Yeah, and good on open bet, a great transaction in my book. I was going to say that Michael, Dr. Michael, is not only a psychologist and statistician, it's turning out that he also happens to be a data miner. So you're definitely living a very entertaining and fanciful life. Going back, if I may, to the gambling industry and dramatic music please the uk wide paper you've of course had a long-term exposure to regulator and other developments in the uk so where do you actually stand on the white paper consultation and on the key principles that underlie the white paper and i suppose by implication the future regulation in the united kingdom mm, a tough cookie <laughs> We responded uh, to the white paper a couple uh, couple of days ago with respect to those, you know, areas where, I mean, I feel I am, you know, uh, competent and, you know, uh, skilled. And what I really sort of, you know, welcome in the white paper and generally um, with the UK uh, regulation and where it's headed is towards the personalization, right? Towards, you know, personalizing the approach and actually the prevention. Because still, you know, you have a lot of discussions, you know, in other jurisdictions or, you know, with, with, uh, with gambling operators, which are very much focused on identifying problem gambling. It's all about, you know, algorithms, 
you know, how can we identify whether somebody, you know, might, uh, whether there might be an underlying, you know, problematic gambling behavior. But in my, of course, you know, that's a valid question and something, you know, that's, of course, very important to cover with, uh, with the data. But the biggest benefit for me really with that, you know, we have, or that operators have lies in the prevention, you know, because there is a direct connection between the operator and the player and they can communicate with the player at any point of time. They can nudge players towards, you know, healthy behavior as very, very early on. They can be transparent and, you know, they, you know, are empowered. They can empower the person really, you know, to prevent actually overspending. And that's what some, that's something, you know, that's pretty um, sort of, you know, important, significant um, in the white paper. And that's something, you know, I endorse not only with the UK regulation, but partly also, I mean, we have other European countries like Spain, Sweden, Denmark, partly also Germany, which, you know, at least mention the importance of uh, personalized feedback as an instrument to prevent problematic gambling. Absolutely. I can't agree more. And I would suggest that this is indeed what the whole white paper debate is meant to focus on hopping across the pond. Michael and I have just already, let me rephrase, I've just had the privilege and pleasure to have shared the panel with Michael at G2E. You fancy that, the audience, go and look that up. But responsible gambling in the US, we've tackled the UK, you've kindly also mentioned Europe. At the risk of stating the obvious, the US has been through a true sports betting revolution in the last five years, and we're talking about legalized betting. So in your view or from your perspective, how different is the approach to responsible gambling in the United States from what uh, you've had a chance to see firsthand in the UK and Europe? I'm probably less an expert in the US. You're much more an expert there. Um, and correct me, you know, if I am now um, missing something about it. So in the US, I'm aware of new the New Jersey, uh, the DGE, the rules that the DGE introduced. And as I said before, so those rules are pretty much focused on identifying overspending, like, you know, high spendings, multiple self-exclusions, things like that. And they focus very strongly, of course, on the detection of somebody who might already have a problem. But, you know, there is less granularity, less detail when it comes to prevention aspects. And what I also see in the U.S. is that there is a big, 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 like, you know, distinction between iGaming and, you know, sports betting, right? So basically those two things are often mentioned quite separately. But of course, we have to keep in mind that these days, you know, sports betting and especially with in-play sports betting with, you know, the large offer available is very close in terms of, for example, event frequency to online casino gambling. And very often sports betting might be seen in a, in a different way, you know, less harmful, etc. But of course, you know, with increased digitization, 
more, you know, available and different, you know, betting patterns and offers. Sports betting is almost equal, you know, to online casino gambling when it comes to the structural characteristics. But there are a lot of U.S. states which do not, you know, require any player monitoring, um, anything in terms of uh, markers of harm. Correct me if I'm wrong. What do you think? Well, you're, you are spot on. It, it's work in progress. And I should be hopeful that more and more states will take cue from the good old garden state of New Jersey. In general, it's very clear to me that uh, perhaps the industry could use rolling out Michael Auer as part of uh, its lobbying efforts to get iGaming finally regulated in more than eight states. In all honesty, my quest next question might turn out to be rather foolish, but I'll ask it anyway, because we've got the ultimate expert on the call. Suppose there's no panacea or silver bullet when it comes to responsible gambling tools. Every customer is different. But Michael, in your experience, are there perhaps tools that are more efficient than others? Or which group of tools would you put on the top of your list to protect our customers? I mean, like I said before, uh, maybe I'm also a little bit biased here because this is my favorite, you know, uh, research subject, but um, it's personalization. I mean, it's less a tool that players would use, but it's, you know, the tool that the operator um, is are in control with. That's why, you know, typically those are not mentioned as responsive gaming tools. Traditionally, like you said before, um, limit voluntary limit setting. It's a typical tool, a voluntary self-exclusion. Uh, we have play breaks. Um, and then, you know, we have those types of tools that, you know, operators sort of control personalization, personalized messages, uh, pop-up messages. I mean, I think nobody would, you know, argue limits won't work because, you know, we know they do. And although, you know, some players might not use it as often, you know, as we'd like to, um, they work and it's also about the operator promoting it because you could have, let's say, limit setting and you have operator A and let's say 5% of the active player base have a limit. Operator B, 30% have a limit. And here it's all about how does an operator promote it because you can't see, you know, the tool, a, a tool like in isolation, but it's a lot about how is it actually promoted, you know, by the operator. How is it mandated by the regulation? You have regulations where players do not have to, I mean, set the limit, but the operator has to offer it. Then you have other regulations, for example, Spain, where every player starts with a default limit. There is a default week daily uh, deposit limit, a weekly deposit limit, and a monthly deposit limit. And players are free to change those, but those are default. So, you know, it's all... You have to see it in connection. And let's say, for example, in Germany, you have the 24 uh, hour, the panic button. Uh, that's another, I mean, tool, you could say short time self exclusion. And, you know, what some players in forums say is they actually don't use it sort of to exclude for problematic reasons, but they actually exclude for 24 hours to protect their withdrawals. So what they do is they win something, they withdraw, and then it takes some time until this withdrawal is executed. And in order for them to prevent um, canceling that withdrawal and re-gambling all their winnings, they exclude, right? Sort of as a, how do you say, you know, kind of a conscious decision 
And so everything needs to be, you know, seen in isolation. But I totally don't agree with, you know, some uh, research which was published a couple of years ago, which would say voluntary limits make no sense. We have to introduce mandatory maximum spend limits because people can control themselves, right? That's absolutely not true. And it's a lot about, you know, operators, you know, and promoting those tours the right way for players to be able, you know, or to uh, use them more frequently. Yeah, it would be, I would suggest, a fallacy to argue that people can control themselves. So every now and then I still can. That's why that Patriots helmet's still on that shelf, but it might be flying away. Given the results the Patriots have had this season, just to give you an example of self-control, but I'm going off tangent. We're actually hitting the home straight of this podcast. So, Michael, it may not be a fair question, but I ask every single guest of mine to summarize their thoughts and distill them down into 60 seconds. So it's all yours to firmly cement your place in the Responsible Gambling Hall of Fame. 60 seconds for you. To convey any messages you like, you know, filming ahead of the holiday season. It could be about the world-renowned Vienna Christmas markets, or it might be about responsible gambling. Wait, uh, uh, up to you. I, 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 I pull up my Amazon wish list. <laughs> Feel free, everybody, you know, to order <laughs> one or more items from that list. No, I mean, I think, you know, for me, you know, I like, I'd like to continue um, what I've been doing for the last couple of years. And really, you know, um, publish more studies. And um, the studies, you know, I'm mostly interested in now are really the experimental ones where you do not only use secondary data, but you have, you know, the option to sort of manipulate conditions, you know, like, okay, player one gets this type of, you know, RG tool, player two gets this type of RG tool. So we can really draw, you know, cause and effect um, relationships. And, you know, I really want to promote and, you know, I, for me, uh, I mean, I, let's say, you know, in five years, I'd like to see most operators really, you know, being transparent with their players and providing them information, providing them self-assessments, self-tests and um, personalized feedback, just like, you know, it's very common in marketing to do that. It should also be very common um, in the area of responsible gaming. And, you know, to have more researchers like myself and Mark work with data provided by operators, because this is the only way how we can, you know, gain more understanding into player behavior and how we can uh, design effective tools that promote responsible gaming healthy play naturally. And that's also something which is important to mention is you will never come down to zero problem gamblers, right? Because it's a continuum, you know, you will always have people who develop an issue, not only with gambling, but maybe, you know, with, uh, with uh, you know, um, sort of, you know, um, fanship, you know, fandomship to certain clubs or uh, with, you know, online shopping or I don't know what, yeah, exactly. And there also always be a continuum, but it's about, you know, identifying those and trying to prevent, you know, um, players developing developing issues. And it's all, you know, in operators' hands and, you know, regulators' policy. But hopefully we as researchers, you know, and responsible operators like yourself can drive regulation 
and you know have regulation especially you know in the us that makes sense that sort of you know um is uh, business intelligent but on the other hand also protects the vulnerable you truly make this industry a better place. Thanks for coming onto the show, ladies and gentlemen. This has been the one and only Dr. Michael, if you will, Michael Auer. My name is Martin Lechka. This is the latest episode of the Safe Bet Show, and I shall see you next time. Mm -hmm.